Hi, and welcome to Civs 101, the show where historians discuss Sid Meier's Civilization series. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we'll be looking at the Zulu, which is one of the original 14 Civs of the Civilization series. The Zulu have appeared in every game in the series, though in recent entries, they've arrived as post-release downloadable content. Throughout most of the Civilization series, the Zulu have been the sole representatives for the people of Sub-Saharan Africa. Furthermore, throughout the entire series, the Zulu have been led by Shaka, whose presence in civilization is as consistent as Gandhi for India and Montezuma for the Aztecs. To help me consider civilization's depiction of Shaka and the Zulus, I've invited on Dr. T.J. Tali. Dr. Tali is an assistant professor of history at the University of San Diego. His area of expertise includes Southern African history, gender and sexuality, settler colonialism, and Zulu language and culture. His book, Queering Colonial Natal, was published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2019. TJ, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, well, I'm excited to have you. So, uh, TJ, the roots of this episode began with a Twitter conversation in which you were complaining about Civilization VI, uh, and in particular the uh, Canadian leader, uh, Wilfred Laurie, who you can see here is one of my competitors in this uh, playthrough of uh, Shaka and the Zulu. And so I'm wondering, uh, what is your experience with the Civilization series, and in a general way, what do you make of how this series presents the past? Oh, that's so great. So thank you again. I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, I obviously am a historian. And when the first um, Civilization game came out in 1981, I was seven. And I was one of those strange nerdy children that was immediately fascinated with like basically what I called history sin city, right? Which I think is not a, an unfair description of, of the game. So I'm someone who has grown up playing this game in every iteration and then became a historian and specifically a Zulu historian um, <laughs> because Shaga has always been with me, right? And, and he was this initial figure that I first interacted with. The interesting thing for me is that, of course, history um, is dynamic and extraordinarily complex, but of course it gets flattened to make it, you know, an enjoyable gaming experience, right? And there are, there are lots of things I think that get lost to a certain extent when one flattens um, history to make it a sort of all part of the same sort of equal playable experience. Um, and so for me as a historian, it's a deeply enjoyable enterprise, but it is often almost separate from my my love or interest in um, history as an academic pursuit, right? It is, it is this sort of enjoyable way to imagine a different world, but also one in which the rules are so remarkably different than our own. Uh, I do love that it came from this initial conversation because I about my positionality as a civilization player, right? I am a professor of African history. I am an African-American. Um, and also I often think about the ways in which certain presented. And it was very interesting to choose, for example, Wilfrid Laurier as the prime minister of Canada, who himself enacted some very particularly um, anti-Black legislation. He had some particularly sort of anti-Black sentiments in the in the early 1900s, not unlike most Canadian leaders, but one sort of surmising the idea that Canada was not a place for Black people. Right? 
so I did joke once as well that one of my fun things to do is often conquer Canada as shoppers. <laughs> well, as you can see here in my playthrough, uh, we are not on the same page. We are unfriendly. <laughs> uh, he's got grievances against me. Uh, but unfortunately, as far as warfare, it's a little bit difficult because I'm up here kind of in the northeast of this continent doing pretty well. <laughs> Uh, but Canada's all the way down here in the south, and in between us are the Gauls. And so it's kind of like, well, I could try to fight the Canadians, but it, it would be, it would have to wait for better technology, uh, especially with ships, in order to get down there. <laughs> Absolutely. And you can't immediately declare war on him, right? Yes. So always this this the canada's magical peacetime defense shield is it does make it a bit a bit difficult also you have the only other sort of active um abdominal player between the two of you right mm -hmm. so you um shaga and um and the leader of the gauls who i think both are sort of almost beefcakey designs right <laughs> sort, of, sort of glistening shirtless men um with shields and spears looking very tribal for you um yes. funny one of my friends, we played a game where it was a series of all the shirtless men. Um, <laughs> and we called it Battle of the Himbos. So it was very fun to think what does it mean if all the shirtless men play against each other. I love you know, that. And then you've got some characters like Hammurabi. I mean, he's a bit of a mix between the two because, you know, obviously he's got, you know, he's shirt, shirted. But at the same time, you can yeah. tell he's built. He's built. Yeah. Lift, lifting those tablets has to be. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly um cool. so, so let's turn to the subject uh for today's episode uh and the leader of the zulu civ uh, is shaka uh, and he's appeared in every version of civilization dating back uh to 1991 and i'm wondering what do you make of the game's use of shaka as a representative figure for the zulu it's really fascinating right because of course if we are to think of the, the zulu we could I'm sure we will, talking about the fact that the Zulu is really only African group chosen. And if you're going to pick sort of a magical essentialist leader in the way that they did, right, for all of the leaders, Shaga is the most obvious choice. Um, Shaga is the, the conventional founder of the Zulu empire and sort of first central monarch. He is the one who, um, in 1816, when he succeeds his father, Senzigakona, um, he's the one that sort of creates a unified Zulu polity and is in many records known as this sort of military innovator, which makes him right sort of idea of, of presenting a, an innovative um, milita militaristic civilization, right? And so uh, when one thinks of sort of like the founding father, if there were such a thing of this sort of Zulu nation as it's understood, Shaga Gakona really does come to mind. So. He's really the most fitting, but I find it really interesting too, that in 1991, when Shag is chosen, right, and the Zulus are chosen, this is only a few years, I think about five years after a very um, successful international TV series, right? So um, Shaga Zulu, um, which was produced by the apartheid government in South Africa, but had a widespread international audience. And it also, in this iteration of Shaga, a very distinct resemblance to the way in which he was depicted in this 1980s um, biographical series um, played by the legendary actor Henry Tele. And so it's really interesting if you see side by sides of Henry Tele, the uh, 
character and this depiction of Shaga, they're they're very strikingly similar. So I love that it's a sort of historic moment that comes up there too. Yeah, and you know, I could say as a, as a white guy growing up in North America uh, in the <laughs> 80s and 90s, um, you know, to the extent that we had any education at all in elementary school about Sub-Saharan Africa, it would be about Shaka and the Zulus. Right. And I'm wondering if that has to do with this uh, this uh, TV movie uh, that came right. out. It's Because we're of a similar generation. And I think this was one of the, the hugely known sort of African figures. And in part because of the popularity of the series. Now, granted, the Zulu nation um, was itself a significant power. And during... Um, the, the apartheid era was a significant polity um, that had to be um, understood and negotiated with, um, even by by with the American uh, the American state diplomatically. So um, it would have been someone that both through pop culture and geopolitically made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting if you're picking an initial fourteen civilizations and truly thinking of the dearth of historical imagination. But if you're going to pick one African civilization, sub-Saharan African one. It's not shocking they chose the Zulus, and it's certainly not surprising then that they chose Shaga as the leader, who is the quintessence of what one imagines a sort of Zulu leader and a sort of very sort of masculine warrior to be. Yeah, and I think it fits in with at least the play style of the early civilization yes. games, in which you know a big part of those were you know trying to try your hand at world conquest, and you know who better to do that with than a great military leader. And you could see the same thinking going into the the chosen leaders for other civilizations. You know, in the first few entries, uh, you think about Frederick the Great, Alexander the Great, and all these other dead white guys with the great (laughs) added to the name, you know? And so I think, you know, like you said, if you're going to pick one, it makes sense that it would be the Zulu, especially in that kind of late 80s, early 90s contest. And then if you were going to pick the Zulu, then Chaka would make the most sense in terms probably of gameplay. Absolutely. Yeah. So this idea of civilizations it harkens back to a different era of historical studies based around arbitrarily constructed groups of people usually living in the ancient era. And I'm wondering, what do you make of the game's use of the term civilization? And what do you make of the game's Zulu Civ? That's a great question. So I agree, right? As a historian, the term civilization is, I mean, if we're going to put a too fine a point on it, relatively problematic, right? It assumes a static, unified, unchanging sort of way of being. And I think nowhere was this more sort of this, that sort of tension of this is way back in, uh, was it Civ Three? when you would have your leader, they only had one leader, but as the eras changed, they would change clothing and background. So they would look like other figures. So you had this sort of awkward moment of Queen Elizabeth looking like um, Boudicca and then looking like Queen Elizabeth and then looking like Queen Victoria and then looking like Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. right? And then you had this moment, same for or, or Abraham Lincoln, then being in this sort of weird mythologized stone age version of the White House. So, um, Civilizations as a sort of universal unit don't make a lot of sense, right? They only make sense in this this game when we hyper-simplify. But then we have really interesting and problematic moments where what does it mean to then think of the Australians as a civilization, but not Aboriginals, Mm -hmm. right? And to think of 
the Maori as a civilization, but then not New Zealand. And so what, what is this, when, when does one count? And then we have the moment of say, the Cree versus Canada, right? And so these sort of um, putting them all as equally measurable, dis discrete or distinct units of measurement is, is strange. And it also, it does harken back to a simplified time. And it is for the gameplay. Um, one of the things that's fascinating is it makes for exciting gameplay to play the Zulus, right? They are militaristic. They are extraordinarily um, bonus powered now in these later versions with unique units. The Impi specifically being um, the Impi means war. It can also mean warrior um, in Zulu. Impi singular, Izimpi plural. And so taking the sort of Impi that was categorized by Shaga, especially with the development of the Ikwa, um, the new sort of short stabbing spear, um, and their use of Isoros um, and uh, Como, known as the sort of the, the bull's horns or the buffalo's horns um, formation, like taking these units and making them sort of like profound military units is very exciting, right? But one qualm that I have is that it also runs the risk of reinscribing some of the more unfortunate um, 19th and 20th century racialized depictions of other peoples of the world, mm -hmm. right? Not seeing any sub-Saharan Africans as particularly cerebral, right? We're not seeing, if we, I would put him again initially, Shaga and the Zulus, um, which sounds like a strange music group, but Shaga and the Zulus <laughs> in this sort of way with, with Montezuma and the Aztecs, right? There were this, these were these, Khan and the Mongols, right? These sorts of terrifying military ones that could wipe out your civilization, right? They were almost antithetical civilizations, right? And and there's a there's a distinct tracing of this back to even rhetorically back to the late 19th century, when the Zulus do defeat the British at the first the first battles of the Anglo-Zulu War in 1879. Um, significantly, the British are defeated at the height of their military and global power by the Zulu nation under Tetshwayo's uh, um, nephew, um, uh, a man named, um, or sorry, Shaga's nephew, a man named Tetshwayo Kampande. And they're defeated at a battle called Isandalwana with, with the Impi. And so they have developed ever since this sort of mythology of being this extraordinarily powerful threat, like, hypernatural um, military force that can destroy civilizations. And I think part of that gets recaptured and re, um, redistributed in digital form in this game. Um, it's not wrong to enjoy uh, like the sort of power and the military development of the civilization, but it does make me wanna question, what does it mean when we think that they can be reduced sort of to being this particularly military civilization? Sometimes I really enjoy playing the Zulus and then out of spite, winning a space age victory. Mm -hmm. Just to be able to look what I can do. <laughs> um, while I still conquer Canada because Wilfred Laurier. Had <laughs> yeah, no. You got to give Canada. Um, <laughs> yeah. They got it. They know what they were doing. I find often like, <laughs> I will always gun for Victoria and Wilfred because they know what they did. Um, but, but in general, um, I do think there's a sort of this easy assignation of them being just militarized. No, granted being, um, a military culture is is a big part of Zulu self-identity, right? Being part of the successful, powerful empire. Um, and contemporary Zulus today would say this as well. But um, when that is sort of seen as the totality for this game, that, that can be worrisome, right? Yes. And simplifying. Yes, yeah, I totally agree. And 
you know, somebody with a, a PhD in British imperial history, you know, the way <laughs> in which the British tried to understand the Zulu was to put them in Western terms, these kind of over-militarized terms, and it kind of blanks out the rest of their culture, right? Uh, you know, yes. it's like they can only be um, this militarized group, and that's the only way to explain how they could have defeated or held off the British for as long as they did. Um, and that's, I think, done you know, a huge amount of uh, detrimental power to you know, kind of the historical legacy for the Zulu and for their culture. Exactly. Well, and it's really fascinating, right? Because in the 19th century, they were seen as what were one of the several martial races in the British mm-hmm. Empire. And so, and this was a wide, a wide expanse. So the British would have considered Highland Scots. They would say, for example, the Sikhs. They would have considered um, the Zulu. Um, a few others as these sort of martial races. And so these were ones that could be respected because they were not competitors, but they were seen as these hypernatural military um, to be modeled after, right? That they And defeating them by proxy then made Britain seem even more powerful. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of reductive sort of rendering that's still there, right? It's a, and people would say, but it's our, it's our way of honoring them. And you're like, yes but honoring them that also still tells an uncomfortable story, right? Yeah. And one that legacies of imperialism in it. Yeah. yeah. So now we've entered the Renaissance and Wilfred Laurie is uh, attempting to hold us off a bit by complimenting us, I think. So mm-hmm. we're going to have to do something it's, about this. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, Wilfred. I see your little waistcoat. I see you. <laughs> um, so uh, my last question uh, is, you know, you are uh, a scholar. Uh, but you're also an experienced Civ player. And I'm wondering, do you have any recommendations for the developers of the Civilization series going forward, uh, either with regard to Shock and the Zulus, uh, this new music group that we've come up with, uh, or do you have any kind of general statements about Civilization going forward? That is, I, I'm excited you asked, right? I think there's a few things. Um, one, um, the gameplay itself, we're never going to fully escape the trap of civilization, right? The trap of civilization is that it has flattened a series of variables that are interchangeable. It's less Fordist than it used to be, right? Remember that it could be any civilization was the exact same and it was just different colors. Now it's nice that they have sort of challenging or different gameplay, right? Um, one of the things that also helps is having a significant array of sub-Saharan African choices. There was something particularly infuriating about having 11 or so European countries to choose from and being like, who am I going to be today? Am I going <laughs> to be the Zulu or am I going to be Mali, right? Like, um, and so now having, you know, Ethiopia or the Congo or Nubia, um, not perfect, um, but having a variety means that Shagas and the Zulus are less sole candidate of Sub-Saharan Africa for starters, right? I think another thing would be the ability to possibly think about other leaders. Um, now it's hard though, because Shaga has become as iconic as, you know, to a certain extent, Gandhi and absolutely Montezuma. But um, what would it mean to think about playing against apes? It's been a very easy game to play a certain type of hyper. And yet it's not as if there haven't been African scholars or Zulu scholars or Zulu diplomats. Right, and so thinking about what might alternate tracks look like, playing 
the future might be interesting to sort of think about combining types um, or have different leadership or different control types. Um, there are also no shortage of other figures actually historically to choose from. And as it's done a good job of bringing lesser known figures more widely to, to the audience, that could be done too. There are a significant number of Zulu monarchs, including Tetrial Kampande, the actual defeater of British in 1879. Um, controversially, there is the 20th century leader under an independent, semi-independent um, Zulu state, um, still under the control of the apartheid South African government, known as a man um, still living named Mangasutu Butelezi. Um, but these would be other figures, right? Um, so I would think that playing the game in the future, um, the game could really include thinking about what does it mean to be Zulu other than just being a war machine? What does it mean to be Zulu other than empty, right? One of the things they do this time that I think is so fascinating include Zulu music. And there is a full range of very well-known, well-established Zulu musical tradition. Right, and so hearing guitars and Zulu choral arrangements, thinking about music like Isiklata Mia, which is best known to people in the West as some of the musical stylings of the group Ladysmith Black Mambazo, who um, uh, collaborated with Paul Simon on the Graceland album in 1986. Um, but thinking about what might um, sort of bringing up Zulu artistic conventions look like. I noticed that I don't hear any Zulu music or musicians as part of the great musician catalog, but Ladysmith Black Mombazo would be an excellent example, right? So rounding them out more would be great because again, we imagine a sort of universal civilization player who I think is often white, male, straight of a certain way. And yet, what would it mean to think they're black people playing this game, <laughs> right? What does it mean for us to see ourselves reflected or African people in general, right? The game, um, not just flattening universal characters so that you can almost cosplay them. Right. It should be about thinking about the complexities of history while still being dynamic and fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are all great ideas. And, you know, I think but just trying to imagine the developer's perspective, I, it seemed like they really leaned in with Civilization Six into the leaders. And in fact, you know, yes. when you're choosing a Civ, you choose it by the leader's name. You don't choose it by. Uh, the sieve that they represent, which I think is an mm -hmm. interesting turn. And I think it kind of plays into that idea that you have of, you know, cosplay uh, as mm -hmm. this person, uh, as this leader. But, you know, I think you're right. Uh, you know, you, it, it would, it's an interesting idea, you know, if you are this traditional uh, kind of assumed game player, uh, but what if you don't come from one of those uh, assumed backgrounds, right? What does it mean? Yeah. Is it as interesting? Is it as compelling? And I think, you know, you bring up some good points as to ways that could change uh, going forward. Yeah, it's it's still, as always, I mean, I cannot believe that it has been 30 years since I first played. <laughs> right? I know. And right on my, on my family's big boxy computer, they were like, get off the computer. I was like, but I want to play. Um, and I'm a professor that is like, oh, is this research if I do this? Um, <laughs> And yet it still it still compels us, right? We do want to be involved in sort of a grand narrative. We want to be involved in this history. Although you and I, as we both know, history is not just a grand narrative. It's what is attractive, but it's not just great leaders, right? And it's not just powerful organizations. One of the things that's really difficult about Civ is that we don't actually see everyday people, right? Mm -hmm. In order to gamify that. It also means that we then flatten some particularly horrifying aspects of history. Right. 
The idea, again, for me as a Black American player, picking angle trade as one of my one of my um, civics options is always uncomfortable. Right, like, and especially when I'm playing triangle trade on like a real earth map, I happen to be on North America and then I can make a cotton plantation. There's a, an actual weird psychological moment that happens when you're like, no. And so that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done, but it needs to be done perhaps with more care. And it's not, it's not the same thing as like um, having a merchant marine, right? Like those, yeah. those are... It seems almost flippant, right? To have colonialism just simply as, or the ability to declare colonial war, right? And and I think that again, it presumes a universal player who has not experienced the negative repercussions of these things. And so these are interesting things to play rather than lived realities. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, uh, on that note, <laughs> that does it for this episode of Civs 101. TJ, thank you so much for joining me. Oh my God, I had a blast. I can't wait to go home and play more of this. <laughs> All right. Until next time, viewer. Goodbye.